Good morning. It's good to be back with you again. Thank you for inviting me up, and uh, I'd like to bring to you greetings from your brothers and sisters at First Scots PCA down in Beaufort. And then now I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Chapter 13. And our text will be the first seven verses. Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. Listen to this. This is the very word of God. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's ask the Lord now in prayer to bless his word to us this morning. Father in heaven, we thank you for the holy scriptures. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who breathed them out and for the Lord Jesus Christ who embodies them. And now we ask your blessing upon the word as it is preached and heard, and may it bring forth fruit for the advancement of your kingdom. And we ask these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, as you know, there's a, uh, an election coming up in six weeks or so. And uh, you might be wondering, uh, did he pick this text because of that? Does it have any connection to the uh, political climate in our our country at this time? And uh, the answer is yes and no. Um, I have had the privilege of being with you a couple of times previously, and on past occasions when I came up, I was using a series that I've been doing in Romans. um, So on the one hand, this happened to be the next text, Uh, just fell very naturally on this occasion. But, you know, I also thought about, well, I don't necessarily have to do uh, Romans this time, even though I've had the privilege of being here somewhat regularly. It doesn't mean these these sermons aren't kind of just sort of one-offs, you know. And so I thought I could preach a different text if I wanted. But then I thought, because of the election coming up, and because of the political climate in our land at this time, it's seems very appropriate and reasonable to go to this text. 
But as I told the brothers while I was communicating with them uh, leading up to today, uh, this is not going to be in any way any kind of a partisan message. It's, there's not going to be anything of partisan politics in it. Um, this passage isn't about partisan politics. It's about Christian duty. Now, the 12th chapter of Romans, we could say, is all about Christian ethics. The 13th chapter, and especially these first seven verses of it, we could say, are about Christian politics. That's why I titled the sermon Christian Politics. This text is about how Christians are to live under human government. Because we must do that. This is about how Christians are to live in human society. And what these verses teach us is that Christ commands that his disciples be subject to civil authorities. That's what these verses are all about. Christ commands. As the King of kings, as the Lord of lords, and particularly as Lord of the church, he commands that you and I be subject to civil authorities. And there's three things I'd like to observe from the text this morning. First of all, we're going to look at the source of authority, and that source is God himself. Secondly, we're going to consider the purpose for authority, and just to sum it up really quickly, it's for your good and mine. And then finally, we're going to consider what our disposition towards authority ought to be. What are our duties toward authority, and what should be our attitude towards those who are in positions of authority. So first of all, uh, the source of authority. The text tells us very plainly, God himself has instituted all authorities. And this is not just an isolated doctrine that we find in Romans 13. We find this throughout the Holy Scriptures. Let me just give you a few examples. Psalm 75, verse 7 speaks of God Almighty, our Heavenly Father, as the one who is always and who, who has the authority to put down one and lift up another. And he is doing that even now in this present age, in this present world. Daniel four thirty two. This was the message to Nebuchadnezzar who had become very proud and puffed up and God was about to judge Nebuchadnezzar and bring him into a period of, of very harsh discipline and reprimand for his pride. And he told Nebuchadnezzar, I'm going to humble you. You're going to become like one of the beasts of the field. You're going to eat grass. You're going to be covered with the dew of heaven for a period of time until you know that the Most High rules over the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. God has that authority. He exercises it. It's not just that he has it, but leaves it on the shelf. He is the one who gives all authority. That's why our Lord Jesus, when he was on trial before Pontius Pilate, and would not answer the charges that were brought against him, such that Pilate was amazed, and Pilate says, Don't you answer me? Don't you realize that I, Pontius Pilate, the governor, have the authority to either release you or to crucify you? And Jesus said to him, you would have no authority over me whatsoever unless it had been given to you from above. So you see the scriptures all over. They teach that authority comes from God. He is the source. It's very plain. There's no ambiguity about it. 
There is no authority except from God, and that's speaking of all actual authorities. The existing ones, the ones under which we have been placed at every strata of government. I think local government, state government, federal government, and then also those authorities that you're placed under, for instance, in the workplace. Someone whom, under whom God has sovereignly placed you as a supervisor. Parental authority. Any level, any sphere, authority is, it comes from God. It's given by him. Authority is a divine institution. And all authorities, look with me now at verse 4, all authorities are God's servants. And I know there are questions perhaps in some of your minds now, but we'll get to those. Look at verse 4 though. Speaking of the civil magistrate, speaking of whoever that is that's over you in authority, it says he is God's servant for your good. And it says again in the same verse, he is a servant of God. And speaking specifically of the civil magistrate, he's a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So authorities, let's remember this, authorities are God's servants. Now there's another very interesting word that the scripture text uses to describe the authority. Uh, And it spoke twice just in verse 4 of Authorities being God's servants. But when we get down to verse 6, it says authorities are ministers. Isn't that interesting? In our culture, uh, we tend to reserve that term minister for a preacher, a pastor. You know, So like if, if I meet somebody at the store and they say, hi, how are you? Uh, what do you do? I say, if I say I'm a minister, they'll know what I mean is I'm a pastor of a church. But outside of... American culture, that term minister, is more broadly applicable to public servants. So that, uh, whereas in the United States of America, we have um, a secretary of defense, way, way up my chain of command, that equivalent office, for instance, in the United Kingdom, would be the minister of defense. And that's the way they use the term. In fact, they have a prime Minister, not a president. So you see how the word is used, and that's how the scripture uses the word to refer to all authorities. And the word, uh, it's based, comes out of, it's translated from a form of the word liturgos, which is where we get our word liturgy, which means worship, but really, what is a, what do we come here to do? We're holding a worship service. And why do we call it that? Because we are here to serve the Lord God in worship. So that word liturgos, or a form of it, is used to describe the authority in verse 6. He is a minister. Matthew Poole, commentator, said about using this word minister about, to apply to the authority. He says, The scripture applieth the same title to him that preacheth the word and to him that beareth the sword. Both are ministers of God. And there is one common end of their ministry, which is the good and welfare of mankind. How about that? So there are different spheres of responsibility, but the governor of the state or the police officer on patrol 
and the gospel minister are all equally servants of God. They just have different jobs in that service. Now, admittedly, few who hold positions of authority recognize that theirs is a stewardship from God and that they are accountable to God for their authority and that they exercise that authority as delegated from him and that they're responsible in that way. But it doesn't change the fact, not one bit. All authority comes from God. He is the source. Well, if he's the source, then uh, what's the purpose of authority? Our second point. The purpose of authority, first and foremost, as we uh, come to various things in our text, uh, verse 3 says uh, the purpose of authority is to maintain order, to promote good conduct, and to suppress bad conduct. Look at verse 3 with me. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you'll receive his approval. So the authority is here to maintain order. The authority is here to avenge wrongdoing. And it gets a little bit frightening, doesn't it? But it says the civil magistrate avenges wrongdoing. It carries out God's wrath. That's what we saw at the end of verse 4. If you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He's a servant of God, an avenger. You remember we talked about revenge back when we looked at Romans 12, 19 together, and how that's God's lane, it's not ours. It's not ours to take. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, God says. And sometimes God uses the civil magistrate to mete out at least a portion of that repayment. That's what the authority is for. And so that's why he bears the sword. Now, I don't live around here, but down in the town where I live, the policemen don't carry swords. The sword there, of course, is just a, a, to us now in the modern era, it's a metaphor for whatever force the magistrate is able to exercise. So what, you know, formerly... Would have been done with swords, now is done with guns. That's why my police officer carries a gun. That's why federal law enforcement carry weapons. Whatever kind of weapons they carry, they don't carry that in vain. God has ordained that they enforce the law. In fact, I've heard a definition of government as being legal force. Someone has to enforce the law. Governing authorities do that. He enforces the law. He upholds some degree of order in society, and he's also authorized to punish the criminal. Uh, punishment of crime is a deterrent. Uh, Erasmus, the uh, Dutch philosopher from the days of the Reformation, he's speaking, and, and this will resonate with you, even though he was uh, from 500 years ago, because People under authority in those days faced some of the same issues and problems and questions that you and I face. And Erasmus said, true, these very rulers are pagan and evil, but order is still good. And for the sake of this, the godly must sometimes bear even bad rulers. 
And ultimately, the authority is a minister for your good, as it said in verse 4. Government is beneficial. You may have heard that phrase, how government is a necessary evil. A necessary evil? That's not a biblical way to think about government. Scripture tells us that government is for our good. Even bad government is better than no government. Even bad government is better than anarchy. And so, when I read verse 3, about rulers not being a terror to good conduct but to bad, would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good. Oftentimes, when I'm sitting in my office at my church down in Beaufort, um, I'll look out the window. I could have a view of the parking lot, and sheriff's deputies sometimes come, and they park in our lot. It's actually a great place for a speed trap. Uh, but a lot of times, they just, they just pull in there, and they park in the shade, and they do paperwork or whatever. Uh, and if I were a criminal, I might get nervous. My heart rate might go up a bit if I see the sheriff parked out there. But because I'm not conscious of having broken any laws, I'm perfectly fine with the sheriff being out there, you see? And that's what the text is telling us. Taxes, then, it says, support these ministers. It's their maintenance. That's why we pay tax. Have you ever thought about taxes in that way? I mean, we all hate taxes, let's admit it. But when you pay your taxes... You're paying the maintenance for those who are called to serve God in places of authority in the exact same way as your tithes and offerings go to support the minister of the gospel. So you put your offering in the plate to support the preacher. You send off your tax payment to support those who are maintaining government over you. Um, John Stott wrote this. Political parties of the right and the left differ over the desirable size of the state's role in the nation's life and whether it should increase or decrease taxation. All agree, however, that there are some services which the state must provide, that these have to be paid for, and that this makes taxes necessary. So Christians should accept their tax liability with good grace, paying their dues in full, both national and local, direct and indirect, and also giving proper esteem to the officials who collect and apply them. Again, because authority is there for our good. That's its purpose. And what I just read from Stott kind of has introduced us already now to the third point, and that is what should be our disposition Toward authority. What does the word of Christ say ought to be our attitude towards authority? And what are our duties? Well, our duty begins to be described right at the beginning of this chapter. Verse 1, be subject to authority, it says. Turn with me to Titus, Paul's letter to Titus, chapter 3. Paul said something very similar in his letter to Titus, chapter 3. In verse 1, he says, remind them. Now, Titus is a pastor, and so Paul is telling Titus what to tell his congregants, the people in his church. And he says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, 
to be ready for every good work. See, a reminder is good, especially when it's a reminder about something that we tend to forget and when it's a reminder about something that we don't especially like all that much. He's saying, remind them to be in submission. Remind, reminders are necessary. necessary. And um, in, back in Romans 13, where it says in your English Bible, probably, let every person be subject. That's what the ESV says. That word person, actually, in the Greek is soul. Let every soul be submissive. So it's all-inclusive. John Murray wrote, the implication is that no person is exempt from this subjection. No person enjoys special privileges by which he may ignore or feel himself free to violate the ordinance of magisterial authority. So that's, first of all, our duty, to be subject to our authorities. And then to understand as it says in verse 2, that the one who resists authority will incur judgment. The most immediate reference there is probably to civil punishment. You break the law, you're going to pay the penalty, probably. But it also speaks of the discipline and the displeasure of God himself. Because, brothers and sisters, if you're God's child, but you're not being submissive to the authority, it's displeasing to God And there's no son or daughter that is without discipline. God disciplines those whom he loves. And so if you're in a pattern of disobedience to the authority, don't be surprised if you undergo the fatherly chastisement of your heavenly father for it. What else about our disposition towards authority? We're to do what is good, it says in verse 3. Now you know, Uh, that there's no one who's good. No, not one, right? And when that young ruler came to Jesus and said, good teacher, and Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one's good but God. I get it. But when it says here in Romans 13, do what is good, it's talking about that civil good, that um, moral good that we are capable of and ought to perform. Basically, it's just a way of saying live uprightly. Live honestly. Do what is good. And view your governing authorities as God's servants. Be subject to them, it says in verse 5, for the sake of conscience. Make this a matter of conscience, Paul is saying. Don't just go through the motions, but really do it from the heart. Subjection to authorities is a command of your Lord Jesus Christ. He's the king of kings, he's the lord of lords, and as such, he's saying, obey my um, subordinate authorities. It's not optional. And insubordination is a breach both of the civil law and of the very law of God. Charles Hodge said, subjection to magistrates is not only a civil duty enforced by penal statutes, but also a religious duty and part of our obedience to God. So that whole package of obedience that we as followers of Christ want to render up to God includes being obedient to the civil authority. That's really what is part of, that's part of what it means to be a living sacrifice. Think back to 
Romans 12. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. One component of that, one component of living the Christian life is to render, as it said in verse 7, to everyone what is owed to them. Subjection to whom subjection is owed. And whatever monetary obligation might be involved, whatever honor, whatever courtesy. You can turn there if you like, but uh, I would like to read to you a passage from 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 through 17. Because you realize that somebody, somebody might say, well, that was just Paul. You know, that was his personal opinion. Oh, and by the way, let's not forget that Paul was a Roman citizen, so he had a vested interest in promoting the Roman government and blah, blah, blah. We can make all kinds of excuses. Well, this was not just the doctrine of Paul. This was also the doctrine of the whole scripture, including the apostle Peter. And when he wrote in his first letter, chapter 2, it says, starting in verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Christians should be the very best citizens of all. And Christ commands that his disciples be in subjection to civil authorities. Now it's very tempting to think, well, maybe God failed to anticipate the political climate of our day. Hmm? Or of our nation. Maybe he didn't see this coming, what's going on here and now. Now, if you're thinking that, or if you're thinking, ah, well, hey, Paul, listen here, Paul, you don't know my government. You know what Paul would say to you? He said, you better be glad you didn't know mine. The Jewish leaders under whom Paul was in submission what did they do to him? They beat him. They pursued him from one city to the next, trying to extinguish his ministry, made repeated attempts on his life from the very time he was converted. And yet Paul says, be in submission to those who are in authority. Felix, the governor, left Paul in prison as a favor to the Jews. Felix knew Paul was innocent, could have released him, but he just left him there, kept him in custody, as a political expediency. And Paul says, be in submission to those who are in authority. Eventually, Paul is executed by Rome. And let's remember, too, that Paul and the other apostles, when they said, honor the emperor, who were they talking about? They were talking about Nero. Not a good guy. Not a just ruler. But they said, honor him. Honor his office. Or if you just want to bring it down to Jesus' own admonition, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. 
Well, as we conclude, there is one question that inevitably comes up in a discussion of this kind. When we look at this text, and when we see very clearly, unequivocally, Scripture says, Christians, obey those who are in authority over you. We might ask, is there ever a time when it's appropriate to disobey authority? Is it ever permissible to resist government? The answer is yes, it is permissible at times. If they command what God forbids, or if they forbid what God commands. That's it. Let me read you a couple more quotes, one from Murray, one from Stott. John Murray wrote, When there's a conflict between the requirements of men and the commandments of God, then the word of Peter in Acts 5.29 must take effect. We must obey God rather than men. And then John Stott, We are to submit right up to the point where obedience to the state would entail disobedience to God. Other than that, we're to obey. And then... At that point, resistance would be not only permissible, but would be required. But short of that extremity, and that is an extremity, short of that extremity, our Christian obligation is to be subject to government. Now let me close, please, with a few points of application. First point, acknowledge God's sovereignty in elevating people to office. God is the one putting down one and lifting up another. He rules over the kingdom of men. He gives it to whom he will. So acknowledge his authority and his sovereignty in that. There is no president, there is no chancellor, there is no prime minister, there is no authority of any kind who has any authority except that it was given to that person by God. Number two, very, very important and you can make this application every single day. Pray for those who are in authority. First Timothy chapter 2. Paul says, I urge, first of all, that prayer be made for all people. And he goes on to specify those who are in high positions. Pray for those in authority, no matter what their competence is, no matter what their character is. Pray for them. I think this is a highly neglected Christian duty. And part of the reason I can say that so confidently is because I neglected this duty very woefully for a long, long time. Now, as a matter of conscience, I make it a priority in my prayer. And I encourage you to do so as well. Pray for those who are in high positions. They need it. Having authority and bearing that weight is a terrible burden. They may have sought power and they may be power hungry and they may like being in that position, but it's heavy. Pray for them. Whether you like them or not, whether they have the same letter next to their name as you do or not. We don't pray for our leaders enough. We, we fret about them. We complain, but we don't pray. Pray for them. With thanksgiving, Paul adds in 1 Timothy. One of my favorite Uh, Presbyterian commentators, William Plummer, said, it is not possible that Paul approved of the enormities and cruelties of Nero, yet he prayed for him. 
and charged others to do the same. Number three, pay your taxes. Pay your taxes. Again, it couldn't be more plain. If, If Scripture says if you don't tithe, you're robbing God. If you don't pay your taxes, it's the same. And we can argue about whether taxes should be higher or lower, but being a tax cheat is robbing God. Pay your taxes. Number four, we need to ask the question, well, what about abortion? What about abortion? We live in a country where, uh, even after the overturn of Roe versus Wade, abortion is legal in most states. So what about this government that permits such an atrocity? What about a government that sanctions permits and legalizes the slaughter of innocent children in the womb. Because government permits this, must we resist government? No. Because remember, those two qualifications for resistance, if, if the government requires you to do something God forbids, or if it forbids you from doing something God requires... That's the determining factor. It's one of permission versus mandate. There are many things in this country that are sinful, but they're lawful, they're legal by the statutes of the land. And I spent seven years ministering in Germany. There are, prostitution is legal in Germany. There are lots of things legal that are sinful. And we can take legal and lawful steps to strive for reform, but we cannot disobey disobey authorities unless the higher powers demand that we disobey God. If they started mandating abortions, then it would be a different story. And finally, remember this. By word of encouragement, brothers and sisters, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to the Lord Jesus Christ. You believe his word, right? You believe his word. That's what he told his disciples in Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says. And we sang that opening hymn. This is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. No matter who controls Congress, no matter who's in the White House, no matter whether taxes go up or whether they go down, no matter what the economy looks like or what public policy is shaping up as Jesus Christ is building his church. And when he's finished building his church, when he's added that very last living stone, he's going to come again. He'll return with power and great glory. And we'll see all things put under his feet. And then there will be no other authorities but him. He'll sit on his glorious throne His government will be perfect, and his kingdom will have no end. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. Well, until he does, until he does return with power and glory, he's commanded us to do something else. 
He's commanded that we remember his death through this supper that we're now going to come to. This ordinance of communion, the Lord's Supper. So while we're waiting for him to come back, we watch and we pray and we remember his death through this ordinance. So as we come to the table now, let's remember Christ and honor him as our king.